Presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump has made a habit of giving his opponents nicknames. Some of them are focused on his perception that they don't tell the truth. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll look at how the perception of politicians being liars got started and why it seems to be accepted as part of campaigns. My guests will be political analysts Mike O'Neill and Fred Solop. Plus, Senator John McCain has released a list of what he thinks Arizona's water priorities should be. It includes safeguarding the state's water supply in Lake Mead during declared water cutbacks and getting federal resources to support conservation. I'll ask water expert Dave White what he thinks are the priorities. Also, the trails we take in life can be physical, spiritual, or technological. In his new book, On Trails, Robert Moore explores all of those. We'll find out what he discovered. And the Arizona Coyotes have a new general manager. He's 27 years old and focuses on analytics. How will that affect the team on the ice? Here and now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, we'll look at how the perception of politicians being liars got started and why it seems to be accepted as part of campaigns. I'll talk with political analysts Mike O'Neill and Fred Solop. Also, Tempe's arts and culture scene has a new leader. We'll meet Ralph Remington, who brings experience with the National Endowment for the Arts to the East Valley. We start today's program with a look at Senator John McCain's new list of priorities that's being called a Fire and Water Action Plan. The list includes safeguarding the state's water supply in Lake Mead during declared water cutbacks and getting federal resources to support conservation. With me for a few minutes to talk about that is Dave White, director of the Decision Center for a Desert City at ASU. Hi, Dave. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, always good to talk with you. So what do you make of safeguarding Arizona's water supply in Lake Mead being at the top of this list? Well, first of all, I want to commend the senator for bringing attention to this issue. I agree with the senator that augmenting our water supplies and protecting both fire or protecting both forests and water from the threats that we face are critical issues for the state. Um, and certainly safeguarding the water supplies in Lake Mead during the potential shortages declared by the U.S. Department of Interior that we anticipate uh, in 2018 is an important priority and one that deserves to be near or at the top of any list. And Dave, without getting into the politics of it, because Senator McCain is running for re-election in general, how important as the water situation modifies, as Arizona gets prepared, and is dealing with other states as far as the Colorado River supply is concerned, how important do you think the congressional delegation is to leading something on this, whether it's McCain, whether it's Flake, whether it's a member of Congress? Well, the congressional delegation is certainly important. I would say the most important actors within our governance system, within the institutions that manage our water system, tend to be our state agency, the Arizona Department of Water Resources, and the municipalities, the cities of Phoenix, Scottsdale, Tempe, Tucson, etc. Now, the federal government and the congressional delegation plays an important role in supporting and in guiding the broader direction for the national and regional priorities for our water system. Dave, also on McCain's list, uh, mentioned a federal resources to help support conservation in Arizona. Is any of that currently in effect now, uh, and how vital could that be going forward? Yeah, I would add to the senator's list. Of course, augmenting our water supplies is important, and that's been the conventional wisdom and the traditional approach over the last several decades that we seek the next new bucket of water and protect the rights and interests to our existing supplies. And that priority will remain in place. In addition to the senator's list, we need to have an increased emphasis on smart programs that focus on managing demand 
through conservation-based incentives, technology, and pricing. Uh, I'd also like to commend the senator for raising the issue of expanding reuse and recycling of reclaimed water. We're very effective at that, uh, particularly in the urban areas of the state, and we need to transfer those technologies and management practices to the urban and rural areas of, or to the rural areas of the state. One other issue worth adding that the senator does not address is the refinancing the improved funding for the Arizona Department of Water Resources. As we've noted before, the funding for DWR has been reduced to nearly half of its long-term historical average, and the staffing has been cut similarly. And so especially as we're talking about expanding programs and about increasing the planning and attention that we pay beyond the urban areas of the state, we need to invest in DWR to do that. Dave, in increasing the budget for DWR, what would uh, the priorities be there? What would some new employees or new experts be doing? Certainly the most important is for DWR to reestablish its collaborations in the rural areas of the state. We need to consider expanding our Groundwater Management Act, which has been so effective at increasing the conservation and protecting the aquifer within the active management areas, which are generally in the urban areas of the state, along with some special riparian areas. We need to consider expanding that policy to focus on the entire state. And the Department of Water Resources needs staff to work with a variety of stakeholders, including the agricultural community, as well as the local leadership in those communities um, out in the rural parts of the state to implement the similar policies to protect their their water resources. And Dave, one thing, and this is the final question for you, on the list that I was struck by, even hoping to follow this fairly closely, salt cedar trees referenced in Senator McCain's list. It's an invasive species, consumes about 200 gallons of water a day. How important is that or just invasive species in general as far as water usage? Well, certainly salt cedar, which is an invasive species and is a water-hungry tree, is something that as a you know, both a water-consuming plant as well as an environmental uh, degradation of our native streams is something that is an important issue to address. It is not, for me, one of the priorities. Uh, there are many, many other issues that we could address that would uh, achieve greater levels of conservation and, and greater levels of protection of our water supplies. Uh, so, sure, it's important. I would not have put it on uh, a list of our most important priorities. I would rather have the senator talking about how the local and regional actors can enhance the collaboration with the federal government to complement our local leadership and assist with funding and technical support to advance the water sustainability, particularly to meet costly and difficult challenges that are facing our western cities and rural areas. Dave White is director of the Decision Center for a Desert City at ASU. Dave, thank you as always. Thanks, Steve. And it is day three from the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. And as she has all week, KJZ's Jude Joffe Block is there and joins us now. So, Jude, there still seems to be some kind of division based on the reporting you've done within the Arizona delegation. But tonight we're going to hear from Senator Ted Cruz. We're going to hear from some other people as well. What's the reaction right now? What are people expecting from Cruz? And how might that affect how the delegation is feeling about each other and the ultimate nominee, Donald Trump? 
Yeah, well, a lot of the delegates from Arizona originally were backing Cruz, and there's a lot of anticipation about this speech today. There's actually a thank you event for, for Cruz supporters um, here in Cleveland today that some of the Arizona delegates are going to, an opportunity um, from the Cruz campaign to thank them for their support. Heading into tonight, a lot of these former Cruz supporters are sort of anxiously awaiting to see what Cruz will say, whether there will be a hard endorsement for Donald Trump. And a lot of them want to see that. They want to see the party unified. Even though Trump wasn't their first choice, they say that now they're backing him and that what's really important is to make sure that there's a Republican in the White House and a Republican um, in charge of making nominations to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's a theme that I keep hearing over and over from delegates. Jude, are you getting the feeling from the Arizona delegation that ultimately, when it comes down to November, as you said, trying to defeat Secretary Clinton, I mean, ultimately, that's the outcome. They don't all have to sing kumbaya and be best friends on this, because it seems as though the conventions traditionally, at least over the last couple of decades, has been to really just unify the party, and that's what it's about, and, and almost conflicts go to the side. We don't want that. Ultimately, when you say this, does it just have to come down to who they decide on in the ballot box, and, and all this other fighting, infighting will sort of go away? Well, that's sort of the big question in the air right now. And I think that really, you know, this delegation from Arizona can be split into three camps pretty neatly, that there's people who were very excited about Trump from day one, who are thrilled and over the moon to see their guy um, get the nomination. And then there's folks who were not excited about um, Trump, but are coming around and they now want to see the party unified and they're, you know, willing to get to work for him in November. And then there's um, a small minority of delegates, I believe, that are still somewhat skeptical in that they wanted to leave this convention feeling like the party was unified, but are disappointed by some of the procedures that happened in the convention that they feel were unfair and undemocratic and not transparent. And um, so it, it kind of remains to be seen kind of how that faction um, feels resolution to all of this. But I think I would say that I'm hearing from a lot of folks that they they are very much hoping that the party will feel unified after this event. And Jude, as I mentioned, this is this is day three of a four-day convention. You mentioned there's excitement about Ted Cruz, of course. Tomorrow night, Donald Trump will accept the nomination. But what else might the Arizona delegation be up to today? Well, this morning they had a breakfast with Congressman Trent Franks and um, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who did not end up speaking at the Republican National Convention. Um, he did um, get up and, and speak to his fellow delegates at that breakfast. And today is really kind of a free day. A lot of, a lot of us are pretty exhausted from these long nights and um, a lot of delegates are just sort of taking it easy. Things start up again this evening, so people are resting up for that. KJZZ's Jude Jaffe Block, who's following Arizona's delegation and so much more from the RNC in Cleveland. Jude, thanks as always. Thank you. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Even though we're taught that in polite society, we're really not supposed to question someone's veracity, in politics it happens pretty frequently. In fact, it's almost a requirement to do it publicly, especially in recent years. And apparently, they're not supposed to hold back or cloak the criticism in roundabout phrases. And he said things about me. For instance, I'm very strong on the Second Amendment. He said, Donald Trump will leave the Second Amendment. He's going to destroy the Second Amendment. You're not going to have a Second Amendment. He, he will make up stories. And, you know, he holds up the Bible. 
and then he lies. I think it's very inappropriate. She's been crooked from the beginning, and to think that she has a shot at being our president, crooked Hillary Clinton. We can't let it happen. There are also those who claim that our reform efforts would ensure illegal immigrants. This, too, is false. The reforms, the reforms I'm proposing would not apply to those who are here illegal. We heard a couple of comments there from Donald Trump and one of President Obama's State of the Union addresses when Republican Congressman Joe Wilson called the president a liar. With me now to talk about the concept of the lying politician, whether it's becoming more acceptable to directly call out an opponent's truthfulness and how it may affect voters, our political analyst Mike O'Neill, host of the radio program The Think Tank, and NAU political scientist Fred Solop. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Thank you. Mike, let me start with you just a little bit of a brief history when it comes to this, because I imagine this is not a brand new thing of opponents calling each other liars. It's a reversion to the 18th century, which was nastier than the 20th. Uh, uh, But I think if we want to talk about recent history, uh, take it to the 50s was a kind of era, a good feeling. One of the first things you're taught is everybody loves the president. You treat the president with great respect. The beginning, I think, of the unraveling of that was Watergate. Basically, we had a president of the United States who was caught, among other things, lying. Okay? So uh, fast forward again a couple of decades. Uh, The Republicans are resentful of that. They took after Bill Clinton. That was kind of their revenge, Mm -hmm. I think. And there were a lot of them there who who were around from the earlier time. You remember Hillary worked on the impeachment committee, for example. That wasn't forgotten. Uh, And so they went after Clinton. Uh, I think you saw an escalation of that with President Obama. You used the you lie, famous you lie clip, which produced, you saw, there was the you lie, and then there was an open gasp within the Congress that said, you know, you might say that on the campaign trail, but you don't say that in the well of Congress. And now I'll leave it at that, but I think Trump has taken it to an order of magnitude higher. But it's a continuation. But I see a discontinuity because there's a level to label. You're not just he's not just labeling. You told the lie. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he's got lying Ted. Everybody's a liar. Yeah, Fred, one of the things that strikes me is how direct, as Mike said, how direct it has become. It's not even put out by an independent expenditure group. Now, it's actually candidate to candidates being said. What do you make of that? Well, I, I believe you're right. And I believe Mike's right that this is a long tradition in American politics. And, and Mike dated it back to the 1800s. But then he said Watergate was a major turning point. I agree. But we do have major lies coming to us from earlier presidents. We have the President Johnson talking about the Gulf of Tonkin and being American troops under fire and Kennedy saying we're not going to invade Cuba. This is a long tradition in American politics. Has it escalated? Yes. Are we ready for it? Yes. The American public expects us. In fact, and when Gallup poll looked at ratings of professions for honesty and ethical standards, members of Congress and politicians were at the bottom of the heap. So we, we expect this and we don't um, we don't think it's a problem. In fact, we want our leaders to be effective. And if many people are flocking toward Donald Trump, even though they know he's lying, they flock to him because they see him as effective. So it's a, it's a multidimensional scale that we're looking at here. I think the examples you cited, uh, for example, Kennedy, Bay of Pigs, What's interesting about that, yes, he did lie, but nobody said it. Johnson, 
Gulf of Tonkin, you're right, but nobody, I think, I think there were two votes against the resolution at the time. It was still off limits until maybe the latter days of the Johnson administration was maybe the beginning of the turn and then more so with Nixon. But even when presidents were, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying they haven't always lied, but we're talking about the willingness to assert the president is a liar, I think is comparatively recent. Fred, one of the things, well, yeah, go ahead. We, we have, a, well, let me just, let me just add to that. If you want to just extend that analogy, we have George Bush post Watergate saying there's no weapons of, or there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And that's going to encourage us to, to invade. And, and we know that's a lie. It was never questioned. So the policies aren't getting questioned when they occur, even though people have their doubts and their, but we, but in the campaigns, which is where I think we're focusing our attention right now, we have a free market for campaign advertising, and we there are no limitations, essentially, on the content of advertising. So our, our regulatory structure supports, and in, in some pe- ways people would say encourages lying in the campaign process. Fred, briefly before we go to break, um, when Donald Trump especially brings up a, a, an opponent who lies or crooked Hillary or whatever it may be, it seems like he has a history— legal and otherwise, of people accusing him of the same thing. Uh, is this sort of going back to, to a Teflon situation where he feels like he's unaware that people might come back on him with this? Because it does seem like when one has almost like the old people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. What's the danger there for him? Well, the, uh, ultimately, there is a danger. But in the short run, he knows that uh, the American public has a very short attention span. And and we see that with Melania's, uh, cons- the concern about Melania, uh, uh, plagiarizing her speech so that we move on to the, the next issue in the campaign, day two of the Republican convention. What's going to happen day three? We put the plagiarism behind us. Donald Trump knows that he can say things and then the 24-hour news cycle will move on, the American public will move on, and he will not be held accountable. Now, is there ultimately a, uh, a limitation on that? Yes, he could be found to be a uh, lack of being trustworthy. But we also know that presidents who say, I will never lie to you, like Jimmy Carter, are seen as ineffective and are not successful in the long run in American politics. That's NAU political scientist Fred Solop. Also with me is political analyst Mike O'Neill of the Think Tank. We'll take a quick break and be back with more conversation about lying in politics. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Citizens Clean Elections Commission. Independents voting early in the August 30th primary need to let their county recorder know their party ballot preference by August 19th. azcleanelections.gov slash primary election. This is Here and Now on KJZZ. Stay with us today at 1 for News Hour from the BBC. In Valley traffic right now, I-10 eastbound. There's a collision blocking the shoulder at 91st Avenue. Taking a look at some temperatures around the state right now, 96 degrees in Tucson, it's 99 in Casa Grande, 84 in Prescott, 78 in Flagstaff, and 103 degrees right now in Yuma. Well, a special thank you to our Leadership Society members, Dottie Duncan and Andrew Roberts, for their generous support in bringing programs like Morning Edition and Marketplace to KJZZ. For more information, visit leadership.kjzz.org. It's mostly sunny right now in Phoenix, 28% relative humidity. We have 97 degrees at 1125.
It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, along with political analyst Mike O'Neill of the Think Tank and NAU political scientist Fred Solop. We're talking about the history and what we're seeing currently as far as the lying politician is concerned. Mike, I wanted to ask you the same question we asked Fred before the break. When Donald Trump, with a history of people questioning his truthfulness, comes out so strongly against others in that same category, can that bounce back and hurt him? Ultimately, it can, but I think he's operating on the principle that the best defense is a good offense. If he keeps on throwing out charges fast enough, two things happen. One is other people are are more on the defensive. And two, when he says something that's particularly outrageous, his allies and those who kind of lean his direction could just, if they get caught in something sort of boldface, they say, oh, that's just Donald. You know, he's like that. He's he's enthusiastic or whatever. So I think he's not really been held quite to the same standard. There's been a lot of eye rolling at a lot of the charges. You know, when he says, you know, Lion Ted or whatever, it's just, oh, okay, that's just his style, you know. So I think he gets some slack for that. Fred, do you think there's a a crassness to that, though? Because we often, of course, in public radio, we're talking about civil discussion a lot, and people tend to want that, except they seem to be sort of almost like the moth to the flame sometimes when someone is this aggressive about saying things like this. Do you think it indicates something worse about our politics, or is this maybe a one-off? Well, (laughs) I think it, it, it is a reflection on the American public at large, and, and sometimes I think about politics and the analogy of high school. And, and in high school, the bully is mean to, the, to everybody. The bully picks on people, but the bully attracts attention, and everybody wants the bully to be their friends. So we, we have this psychology about us where we are drawn to this, um, these, this bravado, as you said, like that, the moth to the flame. But, but we also know that, we, that it's not just about the politicians, that people lie in their lives. Mike, Mike and, and I both do survey work, and, and Mike knows very well that if you uh, ask the public, how, what percentage of people voted after the election? Well, we know about during the election, about 50 percent of the American public is going to participate or 50 percent of eligible voters will vote in this presidential election. Post-election, 60, 65 percent of people will say they voted. And interestingly, most of them voted for the winner. So we, we lie in our everyday <laughs> lives. There's a psychology about it that, that we're attracted to, but we also forgive it because we know we engage in the, in the behaviors as well. I think there's something else about this. When you ask, well, do we would would we like more clean campaigns? Would we like it to be less dirty? People say yes, but then they remember the message. It's also true that when you have particularly outrageous or unsubstantiated charges, mm-hmm. over time, what happens is people forget the untrustworthy source, but they remember the charge. So negative charges and and assertions that are lies have uh, a shelf life that that that's troublesome if you're trying to clean clean up our uh, politics. And Mike, let me start with you on this because I think yeah. If I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and even more troublesome is the d- denial of a lie. So uh, some so Ben Carson says that Hillary Clinton is motivated by Lucifer, Saul Linsky, and and Lucifer. And now if Hillary Clinton comes and says. I am not motivated by Lucifer. Well, it just it just reinforces the idea of Hillary Clinton, yeah. Lucifer, Godless. It's just what Mike is saying gets perpetuated in the denial as well. The, you're right. There's that forced reply, even though yeah. it almost seems like something you shouldn't have to. You're, uh, you're playing on a game you can't win. The right. best you can do is break even. Mike, final theme I wanted to touch on, though, is I want to separate lying from promises because we almost equate them to the same thing sometimes. This idea that a politician on the campaign trail says, 
I'm going to do everything positive, nothing negative, plus your taxes will go down. All these things, which we know the politicians, because there are other things in effect, won't be able to do. Is it important to separate that from sort of personal attacks or character issues as opposed to, well, I think I really want to do this, but I mean, you, we, we both know I won't be able to. Well, I think, you know, when you get to the point where you're saying, I will do this, you know, I will cut your, you know, the, the extreme case was read my lips, no new taxes. Mm-hmm, right. That was clear and unambiguous, and he did it. Now, I, I think more troublesome is the assertion that I'm going to, and particularly it relates to, I'm going to cut your taxes, but but then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do some foo-foo and we'll still have more revenue. We can still give you every, numbers that just quite frankly don't add up. And I think that's a bigger long-term problem because what it creates is a complete lack of accountability mm. for uh, the assertions that you make. And the only way you get it is get down in the weeds on budgetary things. And nobody wants to go there. The public doesn't have the stomach for that. Fred, your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts on that is that the, the whole Trump campaign is premised on making America great again. And, and, and what does that mean? What does it mean in terms of are we not great? When were we great? What does it mean to make us great? It's, it's a vision that's being put out there. Now, we know that the president doesn't have the power to change the entire course of history here. That the president doesn't have the power to legislate alone, that it takes a process. And, um, and but we want the vision. We want an eff- the effectiveness. And we're willing to look past the, the individual discretions if, if we can feed that to the public. And Fred, finally, I want Mike to answer this as well. Do you expect, based on what we're seeing already, for this to be what at least some might label, quote unquote, the dirtiest presidential campaign we've seen, meaning the nastiest? Uh, I think it's already descended into nastiness, and it's hard to say it's going to be the nastiness because we have a political history of some very nasty campaign tactics taking place and campaign ads taking place. But but it's already there, and we're not even at the general election. And, and it goes both ways. We've, we've purged John, Donald Trump for lying. But let's just say that Hillary Clinton was just also found guilty of lying to the FBI about – her emails. So it, it goes both ways and the attacks go both ways. Mike, briefly. Uh, I think the evidence is it'll be the dirtiest in certainly recent memory. And worse yet is if it looks like it works, it only goes down from here. Political analyst Mike O'Neill, also host of the radio program, The Think Tank and NAU political scientist, Fred Solop. Gentlemen, thanks for your truthfulness. We appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Despite a string of ownership bumpiness and some unease over where the organization's home ice would be, the Arizona Coyotes have had some recent stability in its management structure. Head coach Dave Tippett and general manager Don Maloney had been working together since 2009, but Maloney was let go in the offseason, and his successor is the 27-year-old John Shika. A lot of National Hockey League observers believe this is a very good time to be running the hockey side of the Coyotes. And with me to talk about the team is John Shika. John, what kind of shape is the organization on the ice? There were some young players who really made some big strides last season. Yeah, I think we have one of the most exciting organizations in the, in the league right now. Uh, I just think that uh, we've got a lot of good young players that, uh, you know, some of them are more established now, which kind of helps with the risk of it. But uh, we also have some high-end players that are still 
you know, cutting their teeth at the junior level, and uh, we have high, high ex- expectations of them. And uh, when you combine that with some of the veteran players, like an Oliver Eckman Larson, who's, uh, you know, a Norris caliber uh, defenseman, and, uh, you know, uh, Golgoski, we just signed here, we feel another good kind of established defenseman that can really solidify us, uh, things for us. We think we're at a, a kind of a tipping point where, uh, you know, we think we've got more talent uh, than we've ever had before, and the results will come as a result of that. When it comes to expectations for, for any professional sport at this level, whether it's NHL or NBA or whatnot, it seems like there's a little less patience, and I wonder how that relates to the NHL. Is it Without rushing, guys, are expectations uh, such now where it's almost like once you draft a player, you're looking at it in, I'm saying, two to three seasons as opposed to four to five seasons. Is that Has the time been compressed as to what your expectations are for players? Yeah, I think you know, the salary cap certainly brought that into the, the league. I think uh, you know everyone's kind of looking to acquire uh, you know, cheap talent, uh, players that are on entry-level deals. So uh, I think that's kind of much what's driving some of that trend. But at the same time, I think you know, when you look at you know, just the way players prepare themselves now, their off-seasons and how they train, nutrition, things like that. These guys are coming into the camp already. I mean, you look at Jacob Chikrin, he's he's got a pro built. And, uh, you know, same thing with uh, Christian Dvorak. These guys are just very committed and uh, physically they're ready to play. Uh, now, that doesn't mean necessarily that they are ready to play, but physically they're in that that uh, that type of shape. So for us, we talk a lot about it uh, in terms of the player development side of things, just if we can help to organically accelerate our players' growth, then that's good for us, it's good for the player, and, and everyone kind of wins. Uh, at the same time, of course, rushing players can uh, can hinder their development, and that's what we want to avoid, of course. So it's about finding that balance, and I would suggest that, yeah, over the uh, past number of years now, uh, I think there has been a trend towards you know players being able to have an impact at an earlier stage. Is there a best way to build when it comes to young players versus veterans, lower salaries versus higher salaries? It's a combination of uh, optimization between the best players for the lowest salary. But, uh, you know, it's really, yeah, you need a good mix. And, you know, bring back a guy like Shane Doan, for instance, you know, his value to our team is is, uh, is tough to measure because it's uh, so important with not only what he can do on the ice, but just how he can, you know, teach these players how to be pros and, and how to be uh, – you know, the types of players that we expect them to be. And uh, and there's a learning curve there, for sure. When you first got promoted to be the GM of the Coyotes, something a lot of news was about analytics and, and the fact you had some analytic background. That concept has been especially prevalent in Major League Baseball. I'm wondering, kind of a two-part question, how did you get involved with analytics, and how do you see them fitting in with what the NHL and how the NHL runs? So I got started myself just on starting my own business. And, uh you know, everyone wanted to, to, to run some analytics in hockey. The problem was is that there wasn't a data set to do so. So my job at that time was to kind of create that data set. So I had a kind of a data data capture company, which became the main data source for NHL teams. And it allowed them to, you know, dig into more in-depth uh, understanding of, of players and who's driving value. So and that was kind of my start. And, uh, you know, as I kind of grew with the business, more and more traction occurred throughout the league. And and the business got to the point where uh, there was enough bright and, and talented people below me that were able to kind of sustain the business itself. So that kind of freed me up to do something within the industry myself. And, uh, and you know, I think it's an important tool. Uh, it's one that we're continuing to gain insight and understanding of pretty much every day. It's just another lens to view the game through and uh, to help us make better decisions because uh, nothing in life has full certainty, but 
as a decision maker, you have kind of this fiduciary duty to thoroughness to your ownership group. My job is just to be as thorough as possible and gather as much information as possible to make the best decision that I can. Everyone's going to make mistakes, and uh, not everything, like I said, is certain. But the closer you can get to certainty uh, in a decision, obviously the best, the best possible case when you're making you know, multi-million dollar decisions. When you're balancing numbers with the eye test and the fact that you have a hockey background, you've got some, some veteran guys you're working with as well, do you lean one way or the other? Are you thinking, are you, are you looking for a way to blend the numbers with the eye test or the other way around? No, I think it's kind of a good opportunity to learn from both. I think, you know, at times if there's, if there's agreement, then obviously that's, uh, that's how when we feel that there's the best decision to be made. Uh, if there's disagreement, which happens, and uh, it certainly is to be expected, then we can both kind of learn from each other's sides in terms of, you know, what is maybe the numbers not uh, illustrating or what are they missing? And uh, conversely, maybe what what, uh, what aren't we valuing enough from our traditional methods of evaluation? So I think it's a great opportunity to just continue to learn more and discover more and, and uh, continue to, you know, evolve your process of how you're looking at evaluating players. So, um, you know, it's not kind of seen as this confrontational thing. Rather, it's seen as this, you know, great opportunity for, for further growth and education and and we're all kind of learning still in this business and uh and the more we can continue to learn and stay ahead of everyone then that's what we're looking to hopefully do john a lot of our listeners in general are interested in big data and as someone who's worked with statistics as you have do you think the influence of this is just going to get bigger and bigger and i don't necessarily mean that organizations lean one way or the other whether it's traditional or analytics but do you think there are just going to be more and more numbers that are important in really figuring out even getting that little extra edge Absolutely. There's still so much to learn about the sport, and, uh, and, and, and as much as we're all experts in this field, and that's kind of what defines who we are, uh, we also have to understand that there's a lot that we don't know, too. And uh, you know, I think that's the value of big data is that you know, it doesn't have a bias. It doesn't have a, a skew towards what they want the, the information to end up to be. You know, here's, here's what it is, and here's the facts. And uh, you know, obviously, the, the, with the advances of technology and the advances of uh, computer science, be able to store some of this database infrastructure, things like that, um, that's going to allow us to, to gain more and more valuable insights. And uh, I think that's certainly the future of where this is all going. You're working with a veteran head coach in Dave Tippett, but I wonder from your personal point of view and, and the hockey that you've played and the hockey that you've watched, is there a style of play you prefer? You know what? I think uh, it's kind of the up-tempo, puck possession style that, uh, that a lot of teams are trying to execute on. I think it's just a matter of how you actually uh, go about strategizing towards that. So, you know, for us, it starts at the grass at the grassroots level. We had a development camp last week uh, where we were able to kind of instill the practices and beliefs that we have in our players, and they can really learn about what the expectations are of the organization and how we want to play. And then now it's about kind of growing and reinforcing those habits, and and of course, always drafting players that actually have the, the physical capacity to execute those skills. So, um, you know, we've got in my mind the most skilled. Uh, group of prospects in the league, and uh, and I know that uh, Tip will do whatever he can to optimize that group and get the most out of them to help them win. So uh, that's kind of you know his style of play is a lot about uh, you know the, the balance or the interaction between Tip and myself. John, there've been some lean times with the Coyotes based on some stuff off the ice. This seems like a good time to be involved with the organization. But I've got to ask you, as, as a native of Canada, um, yeah, how good a market do you think? Phoenix is? How good a market do you think Las Vegas is going to be? Are there enough yeah. hockey fans to make it work? Yeah, I think for sure. I think it's an exceptional market. I think it's got an opportunity to be one of the prime markets in the league, and, and uh, I don't think we've necessarily given it the chance to do so yet. I think 
like any market, they want to see a competitive team that's exciting to watch. At this point now, I think, like I said, we've got more talent than we ever have, and uh, and that's what fans want to see. But in terms of the, you know, the state of the sport itself within, uh, you know, this district, it's uh, it's something that I think there's uh, a lot of, of, of natives that uh, they will come and watch their first game, and uh, and the sport speaks for itself. It's exciting. It's fast. It's uh, different. It's uh, physical. It's uh, skilled. So no, I think it's something that that'll do well in Vegas as well, and uh, certainly something that I expect as we grow here that uh, our fan base will grow with us. With, with us. John Scheike is general manager of the Arizona Coyotes. John, good luck with the season. I appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you very much. Have a great day. And still to come on Here and Now, we'll find out about the effect trails have on our lives. Plus, we'll meet Ralph Remington and talk about Tempe Arts and Culture. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Wells Fargo, investing in communities throughout Arizona with the belief that small measures can have meaning for the people they serve. More at wellsfargo.com. Together, we'll go far. Good morning. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now on 91.5 and KJZZ.org. On the Valley Freeways right now, southbound State Route 51, there's a multi-vehicle crash on the ramp to the eastbound Loop 202 and the westbound I-10. Exercise some caution if you're driving through there. Valley forecast calling for partly cloudy skies, a slight chance for some showers and a high near 108 degrees. We're going to rise up to 112 tomorrow. NPR's Here and Now starts at noon. Political analyst Paris Dinard joins the show to tell us what we can expect at tonight's Republican convention. And also Unilever is paying a billion dollars to buy the online retailer Dollar Shave Club, what that means for its customers. Here and Now from Boston is coming up in less than 20 minutes. Mostly sunny skies right now in Phoenix, 97 degrees at 1143. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. In Phoenix, I'm Steve Goldstein. Hiking is an activity a lot of us in Arizona take part in, whether it's casual with the dog or something deeply challenging. But the focus tends to be on the physical aspects of it, on how our muscles feel, or the snapping of the twigs under our shoes. In his new book, On Trails and Exploration, Robert Moore looks at trails in multiple ways, from the physical to the spiritual to the technological. He was inspired to write about his experiences while on a trek on the Appalachian Trail, and Robert Moore is with me. Robert, the word trail brings along with it multiple meanings, a lot of depth. How much does a trail we make with our feet as hikers, for example, have in common with what we'd label a spiritual trail we've chosen? Are those parallel? I think in a very real sense they are, although it isn't immediately apparent to people when you start thinking about it, especially because the words we use, we use the word trail and we use the word path, and those two words are often used in different ways. We often say a spiritual path, uh, you know, your career path. These are things that, that are projecting forward through space and time and are sort of leading you forward. And then we talk about our trail, which oftentimes we think of as projecting backwards behind us. Uh, and then in the hiking trail, those two things, or the trail through a path, uh, through a, or the trail through a field, those two things kind of come together, and that's where I find it really quite beautiful, uh, in the sense of all of us as walkers, and I mean that in a metaphorical sense, walkers trying to move through this life and make sense of it, and navigate this chaotic landscape that is the universe. Uh, leaving these trails behind us, which then other people can pick up and follow and become their paths forward. So I think that there is a very real and close connection between the physical trail and the metaphorical one. 
It's interesting when you use the word chaotic because I think when, and again, I'm simplifying this a bit, but when we think about going on trails, and I mean in the more the concrete sense, it does feel like in some senses that can be an opportunity for us to get away from some of the chaos of our everyday lives. Um, did, did you find that at all? I mean, is that part of what inspired you to write this sort of book? Yeah, that's an interesting point. When I went to hike the Appalachian Trail in 2009, that was something I thought about a lot, is that the, the act of walking is an act of simplification in a way, right? Because you, you can't carry everything with you. You can't carry your whole house with you. So you've got to start leaving things behind. Uh, and at the same time, you, the trail really simplifies your travel, right? It makes your life a lot easier. You just follow the trail. A lot of hikers on the Appalachian Trail don't even have maps. Uh, they, don't, they don't carry any form of navigation. They don't have a GPS. I had a very small pocket compass, but that was about it. And so your life out there is very simplified. Uh, and that simplicity, especially in the modern world where we have so many options, we're sort of a, a, just a dizzying array of choices we can make every day. That simplification, I think, is a really uh, special thing. I was wondering about the technology aspect of things and, and how that has changed how we approach any sort of um, solitary part of our lives. Uh, how do you think technology has changed how we look in general at trails and the trails we take? Well, there, there's two aspects to that. The one aspect is I think that technology is increasingly, in terms of the wilderness aspect, you know, trails through the wilderness, which is how most people, I think, interact with trails, there is more and more technology which allows us to navigate more easily. So, of course, you do have uh, GPS. You also have uh, a lot of new tracking devices like Spot, which uh, will help locate you if you get lost. And then increasingly you have uh, cell phones and smartphones. And so uh, in a certain sense, I think people are going out on trails with less and less experience uh, and more uh, of a sense of a, a safety net, a technological safety net. You saw it just recently. There was a woman, a story in the post about a who died not two miles from the Appalachian Trail, which is a really tragic story. She was wandering off the trail uh, looking for a cell phone signal and actually became disoriented. And rather than finding her way back to the trail, she moved farther away from it, looking for this cell phone signal. Ultimately, sat down, waited for rescue, waited 26 days, and she starved to death, uh, which is a, a, a pretty terrible thing, and, and that's and that's a, a, a real sadness. Um, but at the same time, she was she had made the mistake of not having enough uh, uh, not having enough knowledge, enough wilderness knowledge. Uh, I, I, I should say enough wilderness know-how to get out safely. Uh, so that's one aspect. I think that people are are, are going into the wilderness, uh, especially going hiking on trails with a lot more technology with them. The other side of things, from my perspective, is I, I see the Internet as a kind of wilderness of trails. In fact, a place where, if you think of a trail as connecting one town to the next or one place to the next, there's a real, very real evolution from trails to roads to railways, highways, and then to the Internet, which is this vast connection of trails, which, which allows information to flow from one place to another very, very quickly. But what happens is, if you have too many trails, it actually no longer is useful. You're not reducing the complexity of the universe at all. In fact, you're just adding another layer of complexity on top of it. So what you see with the Internet is attempts to manage this incredible array of trails, this vast profusion of connections. And that's something I think we're still trying to think through as a society. 
It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, talking with author Robert Moore. His book is called On Trails and Exploration. Robert, one thing that struck me is I was thinking about how much of being a human is about creating and following a trail, and how much is more about sort of going off the trail to take the road less traveled. Yeah, I think that's a really fundamental human question, and it, and it differs from culture to culture. I think in America especially, we have a very individualistic mindset. And if you read back through you know, the canon of nature writing, dating back to Thoreau and Emerson, there was a very strong emphasis on self-reliance. Thoreau, in particular, had a real horror of following trails. He describes a trail uh, forming from his backyard to Walden Pond and sees it as this uh, it, it, physical embodiment of the conformity and habit-following, habit-making, I should say. Uh, and he, he, he wants to break out of all of those trails. He, doesn't, he never talks about walking on roads or walking on paths. It's always walking across a blank field, because that was his uh, philosophical mission, was to find new ground. And so I think that there's a kind of interplay between uh, path formation and path breaking, meaning that we need to form paths through our lives to make sense out of the world, but then when those paths become too followed, when, they, when too many people are walking the same path, and again, I mean this physically and metaphorically, it becomes necessary to start breaking off. I think of this even in terms of language. You know, someone will coin a new term, and for a while it's very useful and has a certain cachet, and then over time it lapses into cliché. And I think that that making of cliché, that, that sort of arc, uh, takes place in all sorts of life, because if you're too afraid to break from the trail, then you're just going to be following something blindly, and it won't lead you where you want to go in your life. But at the same time, if you never follow a trail, you're going to be fighting your way through the brambles and the thorn bushes, and life's going to be pretty tough for you. Well, how much in general is a trail about following our own path, and how much of it is about collaborating with other humans and having that be a way for us to come together? Uh, the way that I see it is that it's predominantly about working with other people. I mean, the thing that I find so beautiful about trails is that they don't have any one author. Obviously, as a writer, I, I think of it in these terms, but it's not like a book which one person writes. You, you almost never see a trail that one person created. It's always a collective creation. It's always a sort of communal creation and a nameless creation. And yet, it's something that improves with every person who walks a trail, everyone is editing it a little bit. So each step you take, each little shortcut you take, changes that trail a little bit. Uh, so it's really something we all create together, and we pass down from one to another to help us speed our way. Author Robert Moore, we've been talking about his first book. It's called On Trails and Exploration. And Robert, thank you for the conversation. Thanks so much. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The city of Tempe has been known for its interesting arts-related offerings, and that's been expanding. And now a new leader with a lengthy resume in theater and screenwriting has joined Tempe as its arts and culture deputy director. His name is Ralph Remington, and he joins me now. Ralph, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. What sort of vibe at this point are you getting from Tempe as, as far as the arts and culture scene? Do you think there's a good foundation here? 
I really do. I think that there are a lot of groups here that are that have been here for a long time and really have been interested in the community and have an impact in the community. Child's Play, for instance, for young folks. I mean, those actors and, and, and their audiences have really been essential here. Stray Cat is out there. They're doing some, some great stuff and, and, and edgy stuff for this community, and that's great, and we need to keep having you know more of that. Uh, both of those, um, those companies are actually resident groups at, at uh, TC. When I think about um, options and someone who's worked for the NEA, someone who's worked with Actors Equity, I mean, these are major organizations. Mm -hmm. And I think it seems to a lot of people this is a really good sign to have someone with that background coming here. Um, what have you learned in those other positions that could that could apply today? Are we seeing an evolution when it comes to when it comes to theater, when it comes to arts in general? Yeah, I think there is. Uh, uh, there there was a book by uh, Richard Florida, I believe, uh, some years back uh, about uh, the creative class, you know, and uh, and cities that are have are college towns primarily. Uh, they're grounded in entrepreneurialism and in being innovative, intellectualism, and so uh, they're ripe. Uh, uh, fertile ground, fertile soil mm -hmm. for all kinds of artistic creativity. So, in looking around the country, Tempe is 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 one of the, the hot spots and and probably uh, a best kept secret. And and now more and more people are coming here, and more artists are attracted to this region. Do you think this is a place that needs to have both risk taking and I'm going to call it more conventional stuff because mm -hmm. you've got a pretty broad audience of folks. And and how do you find that balance? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I think a ASU and, and Colleen Jennings Rosenstock uh, has been really kind of uh, uh, holding it down for a long time and bringing some great Broadway shows in and uh, bringing in Hamilton next year and and so all all of the all of the Broadway offerings are, are ASU and Gamage. They're really taking care of that. But uh, the other companies, uh, nonprofits, I think, uh, have an opportunity to really uh, do message impacting work, and uh, so that there's a, a, a longer lasting impact on the community. And you're not necessarily concerned with the bottom dollar, mm. but you're concerned with the mission of those organizations and the impact that it will leave behind. What about at the grassroots level? How much excitement has to come from just neighborhoods and people saying, you know, this is something I want to see, almost a buzz that generates from there? Exactly. Uh, I think uh, neighborhoods are a key. And part of what I'm doing is listening to what people want. Uh, we, we did a arts and culture plan in Tempe, and that's what's kind of guided uh, me being here and us building out our staff at, at Tempe Center for the Arts is this plan that was uh, dictated by over 1,000 community residents. And they've told us kind of what they want what they want to see, and that's what I'm here to try to help fulfill. Is, <clears throat> is arts always in for a battle to some extent? And by that, I'm going to use Arizona Theater Company as mm -hmm. an example, which just recently made the money it was hoping to, to keep its its uh, foundation going, have, right. the, have the season go for next year. But again, as someone who's worked at the national level and mm -hmm. has been in, in some markets where it seems as though the arts are just, I mean, it's just part of the heartbeat, and maybe mm -hmm. in other places it's not quite as much. Um, do you feel like there's always the need to remind people of how important the arts are? I think there there is always a need. Uh, we have a great show, uh, Steam, uh, running at uh, Tempe Gallery at Tempe Center for the Arts, which is science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, and that's what people need more of—not just engineering and math, but also the arts. And I think that what what we're doing is we're we're looking at an entire picture. Arts are part of a holistic environment, and Tempe has offered uh, considerable investment. In 
and its citizens. Her citizens are offering considerable investment with the arts tax or the one-tenth of one percent that's uh, that's sustained TCA all of these years. And uh, that is important. That So when Tempe has made that kind of financial investment, that says a lot about its community and a lot about how its community feels about her art. Ralph, what about you? Uh, as far as when you were a young man, mm-hmm. what got you interested in art? Did you have an aha moment? Oh, sure. I was uh, alienated. My father's a visual artist, but I grew up in inner city Philadelphia and West Philadelphia. And uh, and I was alienated at one point, and my dad encouraged me to go to the Philadelphia High School for Creative and Performing Arts. And I went there, and it saved my life. It, it made me see life in a different way, and it gave me the impetus to to go out and 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 try to use art not just as a as a place to gain notoriety and fame, but a way to create social change mm-hmm. and to make the world a better place. And do you think it's happened? I think it has happened uh, in Minneapolis. I, I created Pillsbury. I founded Pillsbury House Theater, and uh, we've done some great things in those in that community as far as education programs, as far as the main stage. The mission was to provide a platform for marginalized people to have their muted voices heard to engender their self-determination. Do you still feel that inspiration from working with arts? I mean, do you, or is there something that happens to you when you see someone sort of get something and have the same moment you have? Absolutely. Uh, I've, seen, I've seen kids that I've worked with that were truants, chronically truant, had no interest in anything. And when you bring them into a theater class or a music class or a dance class, all of a sudden they're, you could see the, the light bulb go on in their heads. Uh, that, and to, to be able to show kids there's, there's a way other than sports to, we, we are so we, we're, we're a nation of sports worshipers, and I have nothing against sports, but sports isn't the only thing that kids should be involved in. They should see that there's a better way, another way to engage the other side of your mind. Uh, sports are all great. I love our athletes. I love Larry Fitzgerald, Minnesota. Go ahead, shout out. But, but, uh, but sports uh, are just one side of the equation. Uh, arts are another. In the greater picture, um how often do you think arts, because it because it's really no good or bad except subjectively. Sure. How often do you think arts needs to be thought-provoking, but also at times controversial? I think art should uh, be thought, thought-provoking, and in provoking thought, sometimes you are controversial. I don't believe in shock for shock's sake. Uh, I think there's a place for that, but that's just not what I believe in. But some of the things that I have done have been shocking in the, in, in the service of trying to make a point. And so I think uh, we should engage in the deep social issues around us, Black Lives Matter, racism, sexism, homophobia, violence, violence in schools, violence in the workplace, and not in a way that we're beating people over the head with a message, but in a way that deeply hangs onto their nerve endings so that when they leave a performance, they're still thinking about it three days later. That's what art can do. That's the power of art. Well, finally, just about 30 seconds left, but, and this is not all about you, I know, but mm-hmm. When you really sink your teeth into this, you've been on the job about a month and a half or so, what kind of signs can we see that Ralph Remington has influenced what goes on in Tempe? Well, I think you're going to see more artists uh, come here from all over the country, not only nationally, but internationally. You're going to see dance groups. You're going to see theater groups. You're going to see uh, devised work companies that are coming here from all over. You're going to see a multidisciplinary approach. And uh, I think uh, it's going to be exciting. There'll be some work that'll shock. There'll be some work that you'll be delighted by. But as long as people have an opinion about it, the worst thing someone can hear is, oh, it was okay when they leave the theater. You want to hear, I was upset. Set or I loved it, but whatever it was, you want them to move off the dime so that the art meant something. You know that it, it, it struck a chord. 
Ralph Remington is Tempe's new Arts and Culture Deputy Director. Ralph, great to meet you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Nice to meet you. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their assistance on today's program. NPR's Here and Now is up next on member-supported KJZZ-FM Phoenix and HD. If you missed any part of the program, want to catch one of our previous segments, go online this afternoon to kjzz.org. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 noon. KJZZ is supported by True West Credit Union, your full-service technology credit union, doing business for more than 60 years. Find out how to become a member at truewest.org. Federally insured by NCUA.